You are listening to Kilometer Zero by the Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Hello, Cycling Podcast. Uh, it's Kate on the back of the motorbike. We had to stop because of the protest. I uh, don't know what kind of protest it is. Probably a climate protest in which I support wholeheartedly. Uh, race is on. Well, you heard it there, folks. Seb PK. All right. Uh, once the breakaway takes off, we will slot in behind, and then uh, it's looking uh, kind of funny because the last time I was on the motorbike, uh, or not the last time because I was in Denmark, but in Tour de France uh, 2021, stage 19 was the first time I was on the motorbike. Uh, Matej Mohoric was in the breakaway, and he's in the breakaway again today with, uh, I think, Mikel Anare, Niels Pollitt, Taco Vanderhorn and someone else i have to listen to the race radio it's a little bit chaotic when you're on the uh, old motorbike so yeah i will update you with future atmosphere and color commentary not color but colorful au revoir ciao Cycling podcast. I am behind the breakaway, and it, I forgot Quinn Simmons. He was the last one in there, by the way. But uh, it never sort of fails to s- surprise me how fragile bike racers are. Like the race inside the race inside the on top of the motorbike is. It's basically total chaos. I mean, there's a million different things happening at once. There's just continuous motion. Sorry, I gotta go over a speed bump. And I'm really always in awe at the riders' abilities to coordinate themselves through this. From here, from the back of the motorbike, when they can see all of the kind of madness up in front, it's almost as though uh, they're kind of like threading the eye of a needle. passing through so much danger so delicately and compared to the motorbikes and compared to the uh to the, all of the cars commissaires cars the uh cameras the everything i mean they all look so fragile uh all of this infrastructure all of these machines all of these people all of all of this just to cover these fragile human beings who ride their bikes, who are so vulnerable. I mean, you kind of capture how lonely it is to be in the breakaway. Anyways, we're about to pass them, so I'll let you go. Uh, I will check back in soon. Ida, ciao. It's only 55 seconds left to the breakaway. Looks like Echepe Terminé. Uh, and uh, yeah, another thing that's interesting about watching a breakaway 
is that despite all of the chaos that happens around, they're all kind of in their own world, you know? They're completely focused and concentrated and they don't see you at all. They don't see you if you're on the motorbike, they just see something to not hit. They don't see, when you're a fan, they don't look at you. They're in a completely different universe than all of us. And there is something kind of poetic about that. Something vulnerable. I mean, to be able to go deep within oneself despite tumult and chaos. It's an uh, admirable quality cyclists have, so perhaps sometimes unhealthy. Uh, anyways, it looks like we're going to have to wait for another breakaway to form, unless this peloton kind of backs off. Uh, for now, <laughs> we just passed actually a field full of sunflowers, tons of photographers in there. They kind of look like they're lurking like spies, uh, trying to get that perfect shot of the riders coming through and this through the, just filtered through the sunflowers. It just goes to show you how much the devil is in the details, I suppose you could say. Anyways, uh, I'm gonna take some photos of sunflowers myself. It's my favorite flower. Yes, all right, au revoir, ciao. The breakaway seems to still be hanging on. It's been yo-yoing for like a minute, 50 seconds, for seemingly forever. It's hot out here. Uh, usually on the motorbike it's not so bad with the jacket, but uh, it's quite hot. Uh, we're just passing now the VIP helicopters. Uh, I don't know what you have to do to be a VIP to get in the helicopter. Sounds very cool. Do you think Daniel counts as enough as a VIP to be in the helicopter? I think personally he does. It's really dry here. Um, you can kind of smell the wheat, the hay, there's just no moisture in the air, like the ground is completely parched, trees are starting to kill off their own leaves, sort of like a premature autumn just to survive. There's something, I mean obviously this is quite grim. Uh, The landscape is really aching for water. Uh, it's all I can think. I've been thinking about this the whole tour. How there's fires nearby, and you know, the audacity of the protesters, and what the future is of this race with this heat, with this brutal heat, with this uh, dryness. I don't know. These aren't very coherent thoughts, but... It's quite sad, huh? Um, so yes, uh, much like humanity itself, the breakaway is holding on for uh, how much longer? I don't know. You are listening to Kilometer Zero by The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. 
energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. Hello, Mate. Can you hear me? Uh, yes, I can hear you, yeah. Okay, good, because we're in the okay. car uh, driving to the hotel. Uh, I was on the motorbike today. Uh, it was kind of just exactly like stage 19 last year, where you were in the breakaway. I was in the motorbike, and uh, it's just kind of funny. And so I wanted to, to ask you, first of all, like you said very early on that you were going to go in, in a breakaway, and just tell me a little bit about that, uh, getting into that break and staying in. It was quite close, I think. Yeah, I mean, I haven't been feeling as my... I don't know what it is about like my luck or my fate if you believe in fate which I'm starting to kind of believe in it uh I know it's irrational but it feels like things are inexplicably inexplicably connected where they shouldn't be uh so I got to Carcassonne by train and the train took forever because I've never seen French trains seem more like Amtrak you know what I mean Uh, being American, I know what it means for trains to be really slow, especially in the summer because the heat beats down on the tracks. And But I didn't think that such a thing would have an impact on the French railway system, which is one of the most robust and, and clean and beautiful train systems in all of Europe, if not the world, maybe outside of Japan. But it, the train definitely was was slow and it was late and at the in the end I was uh, able to get a first class ticket 
uh, and I sat and I read poetry and listened to classical music and was thinking about coming back to the tour. And of course, I get to Carcassonne right after Roglic left the tour. And yeah, I've just been thinking a lot about how patterns repeat themselves, like comings and goings, hopes fulfilled and unfulfilled. The repetitive tasks of the Tour de France itself, going to the start, writing, interviewing riders at the start, driving a lot, do, 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 watching the race on your phone, going to the finish, going to the press room, eating what's left of the press buffet. Because the people who don't get to this go to the start get the best of the press buffet, and then you go to the finish, then you interview writers, then you sit in the press room, then you write, and then you go to your hotel if it's not closed, which there have been several instances where I'm traveling with Ed Pickering from Roulaire, and we had to basically beg the hotel staff to let us in past 8 p.m., just like we have to beg restaurants. We call it being franced, tour de franced. Uh, so yeah, quite repetitive. Uh, yeah, I mean, most of the tour, except for the Grand Day part, which, uh, I wasn't doing anything for this. I was on the motorbike a little bit for the cycling podcast and I'll be on the motorbike at stage 19. Uh, most of the Tour de France, uh, I watched from Slovenia in this cycling theme bar called Velo Bar in Tornovo, which is, uh, kind of at the edge of the, of the city center. And I was paying in cash <laughs> and speaking in Slovene English because they didn't really speak English there, which I respect. And sometimes my friends would come and join me. And these are my friends who like had some of them had never watched cycling before in their lives. And so I'd get to pay play teacher explaining why cyclists do the things they do. And this included Alp d'Huez stage, which was supposed to be like a really exciting stage in terms of cycling everyone was quite excited about it but because uh everything had happened basically i think on stage 11 they kind of chilled out on on alp d'huez and so it was a little bit disappointing for my friends who had never seen cycling before um but still was fun you know anyways last year uh Roglic left in tinia uh and I started traveling on my own after that, uh, and I was no longer under the wing of Richard and Francois, and so the hotels got way worse. But in a way, I was thinking about how this was a preparation for getting pushed out of the nest, so to speak. And uh, this year, I feel more like a fledgling. Not like a chick, but like a fledgling. Technically, as a fledgling, I can fly, but I still wish I was in the nest. <laughs> the nest sounds pretty good. Uh, I don't know. I, I've been trying not to think so much about how Richard isn't here. I, I won't talk about it much either to spare you the sadness, but it's definitely palpable every day in the press room. And even though, you know, I didn't know Richard for very long, uh, I'm always surprised by how much I really needed him and followed him around like a small child. And Francois also, and this is, of course, Francois's last tour de France. And I don't know, can't help but think like everything at the tour is changing. Um, maybe for the worst, uh, the, like, we have to pay for the Wi-Fi now, which is insane. Uh, I'm not allowed to stand in the mix zone anymore because I don't write for print, though I can still go to the buses. Uh, Netflix gets to go wherever they want and, like, they get, like, for example, I haven't even seen Wout Van Art at all in person this entire tour, uh, 
it's this is just the future of the tour it's content creation spectacle it's not really journalism it's like it's kind of over the days of a bunch of writers schlepping it around France for three weeks. And, you know, I hear stories about the old times from Francois visiting writers in the hotels, having lunch with them, sitting inside the team buses. I, I mean, I never knew that time and I never will. And it is kind of hard not to be bitter about it. Uh, and it's hard not to be sad because things are different even from last year. And I guess this is sort of the fundamental truth of nostalgia, which is attendant to loss, which keeps loss in the heart and sort of refuses to let go of it. Um, but anyway, in Carcassonne, it is hot. And I'm, like I said, I'm staying with Ed from Roulaire in a certain Hotel de France. I think this is Ed's third or fourth Hotel de France. It's two stars and stuck in the 80s. I mean, we're talking sun-bleached prints, pastel, everything. The bathtub is brown enamel, but at the other hand, I like dated buildings because I'm happy they're still around and it's just somewhere to sleep and take breakfast. So, you know, we went out, we eat cassoulet, which I wish came in a child size because there's only so many beans a 60-kilogram woman can eat, you know? like, But still, it's really nice to see everyone again. I mean, the tour is a big family reunion for journalists, Happy families, to kind of misquote Tolstoy, are all like, but unhappy families are all unhappy in their own way. Though I think we are all unhappy in the same way, which is that it's bloody hot outside, just miserably hot and humid. Uh, and this is like, just, I guess, a theme of this Tour de France. It's hot. They had to pour water on the road. I mean, yeah. But the wine is good, and the race is still on. Technically, in the Pyrenees, Bogachar could take back time if he's feeling all right. I mean, there's the flimsiest yet persistent hope that he can still manage to do it. It still seems kind of impossible that he's losing. I mean, he who seemed invincible. Uh, I was recently thinking back, however, to the UAE tour in Basque Country in 2021, long before Vingago dropped Bogachar on Vantu temporarily a few months later in the 21, 2021 tour. And I was just thinking about this footage because it was clear as far back as February of last year that Vingegaard sim seemingly out of nowhere because he didn't have nearly the same consistent track record as Pogaccio, you know, who came one tour California, came third in the Vuelta, but he could still, Vingegaard could still hang with the, the best cyclists in the world. And that stage of Basque country where Roglic outsmarted Pogacar and snagged onto the wheel of the Basque descenders, pulling out an absolute like raid on his competitors, Vingegaard clung to Pogacar's wheel so cloyingly that memes were made about it. I mean, hindsight is twenty twenty, but it does. This does kind of make sense now. Like the signs were all there. Um, I remember also talking to Vingegaard a few times at the tour last year before he was second in GC and didn't want to do press anymore. Uh, he also had like some crashes in the third week, and he seems like pretty beleaguered by by being in in the lead of the Tour de France. And he had the air of someone who was cagey in public, but tried to downplay it, feigning casualness. Uh, but now he's kind of like a boy sitting sprawled leg on a throne. <laughs> His answers are still short and mostly full of not much at all. He learned how to do this from Roglic, I think. But he says them now with like an enviable ease. I don't know if he'll win this tour, but he's certainly acting like it. And sometimes that's just as important. Thank you.
Trois, the press room is really hot. It's so hot, everyone decided to go outside and stand in the river, stripping down to their pants. Like, some journalists dug out their swim trunks from their suitcases. And the river is ice cold. I mean, I dipped my feet in it for a second, and that was enough to bring the core temperature down. And, you know, the, f- the finish is too far from the press room, so I'm just going to stay in. Sometimes in cycling, there's really nice winners. Like the kind of winners that, you know, make you just feel really good inside to see them win. I think Hugo Hu was one of those winners. I mean, I didn't know about his brother until today. His brother was run over by a drunk driver when he was out for a night run. And who was the only one who was the one who found him on the side of the road? I mean, that's what he said in the press conference. The way he said it was kind of like how someone is reciting something that's been prepared over and over, but in the way you just want to get it all out there as fast as possible. And I really like, couldn't believe how open he was about it. All that death and loss and, I don't know, the idea of working for 10 years just to get a stage win in the Tour de France in order to pay homage to the dead. I don't know, even just thinking about it makes me kind of you know, tear up a little bit. Like, what a sport, you know? I don't think any sport is like cycling in terms of the sheer emotions involved, the vulnerability of the athlete. We all process grief in our own ways, obviously. But one thing that that's in common among all who grieve, I think, is the persistence of grief, even long into the future, after we've all gone through the five stages of it or whatever. Because sometimes you'll, I don't know, you'll see something or do something or think of something and it all kind of comes back, the grief. And you have to go through the five stages again, even if you fast forward through them. And when I was doing my dispatches from the motorbike in Denmark, I had to start over again because when I opened up, I opened up the recording with Hello Richard and Francois. And maybe Hugo Uhl thought of his brother every time he got on a, on a bike. I mean, they used to race triathlon together is what he said. But he'll, Hugo will continue to ride the bike anyways. I mean, that's all you can do, perhaps. Like, get on the bike and keep trying. Persevere. You know, know that life keeps going, even at the times when it feels like it's totally stopped. Yeah, I don't know. I was talking to Ed about this. And we were talking about how it got on our nerves that, like, so many people, not just like Twitter people but like uh, sometimes even other journalists are always when something like about like we were talking about the the, the stuff about Pogaccia's hair tufts or like you know when something minor happens and everyone's like this is the greatest thing ever this is the greatest thing ever oh wow I can't believe it wow 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 and it kind of I don't know takes the piss out of out of cycling because so, when something really amazing happens when something like really really emotional happens it's like uh, you can't it's like you already used up all of your big words for something inconsequential uh, like so when something like Hugo Wool happens and you've already said that uh, wow so and so like such and such is the, the greatest win I've ever seen or it's I can't believe it or this is so amazing this is the best Tour de France ever when You've already used your best words or your most, uh, your biggest and most exceptional words for for something that in the end was inconsequential. And I guess this is kind of the nature of content or whatever on the internet. And it doesn't really matter in the long run. But I think like 
maybe, and I include myself in this, trying to be more conservative with the use of words. Um, not being so wow, wow, all the time. Because sometimes wow really does happen. Like stage 11. Like even Michael Matthews coming back and, and winning uh, from, yeah, I couldn't believe that. And now you go, well, like these are really actually great stories. Um, they're highly emotionally charged. Uh, they're exciting and wonderful. And just a lot of stuff in comparison is just kind of far down on the list compared to that. So I don't know, maybe I'll change my Twitter habits or now I can't stop seeing it everywhere. I, I scroll through Twitter every day and see all these exclamations about everything. It's just kind of funny. Uh, I don't know if this makes any sense. Maybe, uh, <laughs> maybe Tom will, will uh, or, uh, maybe, uh, it'll be edited out, but yeah, we have to save our big words for big moments. Uh, I'll try and do more of that. This is Kate Wagner for the Cycling Podcast. At the top of a Peregrude's, we got to watch the finish on the TV screen outside of the UAE bus. And we took a ski lift all the way to the top of the mountain. And some of my colleagues are quite scared of the ski lift. Uh, I was scared last year when we took the ski lift because it was quite janky and uh, rickety and old. But this one was new and nice. And I think it was stage 16 last year where we were. And uh, me and Chris Marshall Ball from uh, Cycling Weekly sat in a in a field on the top of the mountain full of cow pies. Do you remember the cow pies? But I, I mean, I think it's really amazing how much you can forget in a short amount of time. Uh, like on the other, we were going up the ski lift and on the other side of the middle peak is Luzar de Den, which I remember really well because I had to ask Matej Mohoric about the doping raid. And that's thus the time I was baptized into being a journalist. And I remember agonizing over macarons at the press room, which was a good, good press buffet actually that day with Francois. Oh, Francois, how do I ask these questions? And Francois said something about it being a rite of passage and you just have to bite the bullet. And it's true. You don't want to hear it, but it's true. But uh, the air isn't as cool on Peregrine's as it was on Luzard then. And also there's like a burnt quality to it. Um, anyway, to move on to the stage, I really respect Tate Pogacar. I mean, this is quite obvious, but even though he couldn't make anything happen today in terms of the GC, he still won the stage and... When he won it, he and Vingago were just like slugging at each other in slow motion. It's like in cartoons where Bugs Bunny and Elmer Fudd are boxing or whatever, and they get to the point where they're so exhausted. <laughs> they're just flinging their fists, and, and each blow is so labored. <laughs> and, you know, but you say what you want about Bogachar, right? But he still tried. He attacked and attacked and attacked because that's the kind of writer he is. You know, passionate, old school, Merxian. I respect that. You know, a more cowardly man would accept his fate and just pace himself to the finish, conserve his loss, hoard what minutes he has for himself and move on. But then today he fires his guns until there's no ammo left. And then this time his guns were also kind of manned by Brandon McNulty, who did 
the insane pull of a lifetime. I, I mean, I knew that McNulty was, was a good cyclist. Like he was, he was quite good, uh, in, uh, the, I think it was the Dauphiné last year. Yeah. Last year. Cause I was still living in my old apartment and we knew he was like a decent time trialist. And so like these long efforts, they, they did make sense. Uh, but man, he, he was so cooked when he came in to the finish. I mean, he was just, he looked like a dead man. <laughs> I don't know if anyone got an interview with him. I, w- I was at a different, uh, part of the of the finish so I don't know but man he I (laughs) what a teammate you know um I I respect that also (laughs) lots of respect today and then you know there's Vingegaard right with his Danish coolness just sitting there I mean you couldn't pick two more different riders from two more different countries the Danes, not to generalize, the Danes are, but they're all kind of prim and proper and staid, and they've they've built this well-organized society that provides for itself, but is also a bit enigmatic, and it's kind of a bit impenetrable, especially to foreigners, and uh, hard to read, yeah. But the Slovenes are the people whose main square is watched over by the statue of a poet best known for writing the national anthem and poems about profound, unrequited love. Hrepenenya, unfulfilled longing. I mean, Pogaccia, he's got one more day to go when he can fulfill his longing. He needs, like, a miracle. <laughs> We're in, Lord. Uh, or maybe he's been saving just a, a fraction of himself for, for that for that final, final blow. Uh, I mean, tomorrow I'll reflect more on that, depending on how it goes. But for now, this is Kate Wagner for The Cycling Podcast. <sighs> Another day in a sweltering press room. I guess today was the day that Tour de France was lost. Like, really lost. Like, for some reason, I kept clinging to the belief that Pogacar would have something extra, that he'd be able to dredge up something from that remarkable body of his. Not in that way. In the end, all he could do was struggle, and he did. See, this is the thing about the De Pogacar. Like, I remember that final sprint in the Ronde van Vlaanderen, when Pogacar could have easily sprinted in a way that would secure him a spot on the podium. Could have left early let out Vanderpool and still like finish in, I don't know, top three. But he didn't do that for one simple reason, which was that he wanted to win. And he didn't need to play it safe and podium. He wanted all of it or he wanted nothing. And so he teased Vanderpool. Like, and so he sat there and taunted him and got caught out behind Van Barla, who came from behind and shoved Pogacar into fourth. But that's just it, like all or nothing. At the Tour Slovenia, Pogacar's shop showed up at every stage, and one of the things they sold was these flags that, with his and his Pogitini's official slogan, which is never quit trying and never give up. And I know this sounds like some dumb, like, kitschy boyhood cartoon stuff, but it really kind of is just that, and that's the attitude he instills in those kids all the way back in Slovenia. And at Nationals, Slovenian Nationals, which Domen Oblak of Pogitini won, he was faced with Oblak was faced with kind of the specter of Jacques Ergen, who is of, of Milan Ergen's patronage, or it's his son, uh, who is among one of the strongest juniors riders, like period, in Europe. But instead of leading out Ergen into a sprint, the Pogatine kids pretty much like ambushed him in the final kilometers. He, they divided and conquered. And before I put them on the mic for the cycling podcast, they were in total disbelief, shouting at one another, getting rowdy in the ways boys do. 
And this is why it was kind of sad to see two young Slovenian kids pressed up against the chain link fence by the team bosses with their national flag and their pogi team jerseys waiting for a hero that's by that point already at the podium ceremony. And many of these fans are so new. Uh, we Americans are always a bit burned about how fair weather cycling fandom is in countries that dominate and then fizzle out. Like road cycling there has never recovered from Lance. I mean, all of the races we've lost, Tour of California, Tour of Georgia, Tour of Utah, Tour of Colorado. I mean, all of that is gone. The basic com- like spirit and infrastructure of professional cycling in America is just a shadow of its formal self. So I guess what this means for Slovenian cycling itself if, is, is kind of undetermined. Um, but to be honest, I don't think that the Slovenes were really ever smug or arrogant about dominating cycling. Just going by my colleagues and the fans that I've interviewed for various publications, I think Slovenia was mostly just thankful, um, thankful that it got to happen to them in the same way it happened to France and Italy, Spain and the USA, etc. And I don't think their era is any in any way over. But it's obvious that it's been this this tour that it's been interrupted. And but now it's on the upswing. Now you get the redemption arc. Um, and anyway, eras get shorter and shorter these days talent gets younger and younger two years from now and Vingegaard and Pogacar could be replaced by someone even more precocious and it's maybe worth studying whether this is due to the recruitment of younger and younger cyclists whose matches burn brighter but shorter it's kind of like a clinical trial in that it'll take a few years to know for sure anyway Pogacar attacked on the Col de Spandel four times he kicked off just like absolutely violently to try and dislodge Vingegaard only to in the end be dropped on the Hautecam and ended up losing time but Vingegaard is rather like someone clinging onto the handles of a roller coaster harness. Yes, it's going very fast, and surely it's quite scary, but in the end, everyone knows it'll be fine. There's a grip there, though, just hanging on like glue, and these are two totally different types of riders. Like, Even if Bogacar rode stupidly in the Alps on stage 11, even though Yambo baited him with Roglic and then dive-bombed him again and again, Bogacar still fought, like, as stupid as it was. And as the meme goes that guy had that dog in him sorry but this is exactly what makes this tour so exciting i mean if bogata didn't attack if he didn't follow if he didn't behave more like a boxer than a calorie counting cyclist there'd be no story like that sprint in ronde where he gave it it all but he finished fourth he gave it all in spandel and dropped like a stone on the final kilometers of haltecam but at least he did the former indeed even though vingegaard would like certainly win the tour the whole thing still narratively revolves around Pogacar, who is a rider we know quite well after all these press conferences, etc. Similar to 2020 with Roglic, I mean, the tour story revolves around losing and responding. Part of this is because Vingegaard is a relative unknown entity. Some cyclists don't have big personalities like Pogacar, who is gregarious and silly and bold, posting on social media. I mean, compared to him, like Vingegaard is borderline demure. He's just like this quiet family man. He's the kind of athlete who only talks about his girlfriend. I don't mean that in any kind of derogatory way. I mean, he's just, not everyone has to have thousands of interests, and not everyone has to be extremely complicated, but more, we we don't really know who he is. I mean, we haven't seen much of his personality here, except for that he likes to make phone calls to his girlfriend. He finishes races, like, absolutely knackered, uh, and that he, to the point of silliness, yeah, and he waited up for Pogacar to bridge after Pogacar slid out in the Spandel. And, you know, like I wrote in Derailer, I, I found that to be indulgent. I mean, not that he was being indulgent, but that I, K. Wagner, personally found it to be indulgent. That's my opinion. 
I don't know why Ivan Gogo did it because I missed the press conference, but maybe he was just being nice. Maybe it was a heartwarming show of total sportsmanship. But in my own way, I found it indulgent because it was Vingegaard's way of showing Bogacha that he didn't consider him to be a threat. Not now, not ever. It was like, in a quiet way, a statement of total victory and in that regard, kind of ostentatious. That doesn't mean Vingegaard isn't nice. I'm, I mean, and I'm no longer invested in whether cyclists are nice or not. I mean, I actually think Vingegaard is a nice guy. Uh, I know fans are invested in that, so I will, I will give you some comfort. He is a nice guy. Um, but Gino Mater once said something to me that was very adroit. Sorry, honking. When I asked him about Mark Hershey, whom he knew from juniors, and Hershey's nice, which is what Gino said, but he added, but you know, everyone's nice. It's the same with Jonas. I mean, it's not that he's nice or he's not nice. The handshake simply meant that he'd won so thoroughly that to make such a gesture was intuitive and that he did not for one moment hesitate to think, maybe I shouldn't let him back on. I'm sure I'll have more feelings about Pogacar after the tour is over, over, or at least the time trial, which he's still relevant in, and I hope that in the press or afterwards that we'll see more of Vingogod's elusive personality come out. I'm sympathetic to the personally elusive. I mean, I'm not going to give Roglic a pass on that and not Vingogod. He's young. Becoming a champion changes people. Becoming a loser could change Pogacar. He's never lost like this before. But what's more interesting, them changing because their circumstances have or them staying exactly the same a rivalry of the hothead Pogacar and the icicle Vingegaard. But perhaps someone else will show up. The competition gets younger and younger these days. This is Kate Wagner for the Cycling Podcast. Just a little bit of off the cuff. Um, I just got out of the press conference uh, the tour is over, over. Uh, the time trial was quite eventful. Wout Van Aert winning, and he said, Wout Van Aert said in the press conference that he let that, jo- that Jonas was going to win and let Van Aert have the final victory, which I guess speaks a lot to the rapport in the team and you know what it means for Team Jumbo Visma. And of course, they were all quite emotional afterwards because for all of them, I think since 2020 and even before, this has been like a massive journey of redemption from what has to have been like one of the most humiliating defeats in you know, at least like the last 10 years. Um, and so, of course, they were all quite, quite emotional. Um, and, yeah, it was, you know, I've never seen Pogacar so... He started to open up to the press this uh, this past year, and now in this press conference, he was just totally shut off to them again. Um, like, Garrett Thomas in his press conference is very open, cracking jokes, being funny. And, you know, and that comes with years and years of being in front of the camera. Um, but Bogachar, he was... Uh, it's not that he was, was sad or that he looked, you know, defeated. or It's just he was poised and he was calm. And he really just wanted to get out of there. Like, you can feel... You could kind of feel the tension in his way of being you know um and in the in that seeing him there in the white jersey like I felt sorry for him um because I know he would never he had he would never ever like concede in a way and when they asked him if he would change his style of racing to be less aggressive he said no and like I said I I respect that I respect the will to fight I mean, we're living in really difficult times. Um, I'm American, <laughs> and we all know what's going on in America. 
And I respect anyone who has the will to fight, just point blank, because it's very hard to fight. Um, yeah, I struggle with the will to fight personally every day. And to fight, to stand up for yourself, to get back on the horse after you've been down. I mean, I think this is a reason why lots of people watch cycling. And yeah, I mean, then Vingago had his press conference and, you know, we didn't really see that much of his personality. I asked him two questions. I had to ask it the bad question about whether we could believe him and his performance. And he gave a good answer. I mean, he gave a really thorough answer about like the training regimen of Yumbo Visma, all of the tests that they did, all of the things that they were working on in the wind tunnel and the altitude camps. And he, he didn't seem upset by the answer at all. Um, and he really had a lot of confidence. It's, he seemed very acclimated to the media by this point, and he's a nice guy. I mean, I think that uh, I don't know if this will change him. When I asked him also, like, what his hobbies were or whatever, he said, I just like to spend time with my family, and maybe that's the kind of guy that he is. You know, that's something to admire in and of itself, I guess. I mean, I couldn't be any... I don't have kids. I couldn't, couldn't be further from what kind of person I am personally, though I do love my family. But, yeah, I mean, I think he carried himself really well, and it was a nice moment for Denmark. Um, Danish cycling kind of does feel, and Dutch cycling also feels a bit like a redemption arc. But the thing that really got me in the end was Francois going up to win his award, and that he's not going to be at the tour anymore. Um, yeah um, so best wishes to Francois and what a guy it's not going to be the same without him so yeah so I guess we have to get to our hotel now. Um, sorry for talking really fast into the microphone and uh, like my weird accent now that I have from spending all this time in Europe. And uh, I'm just trying to get it all out there. <laughs> what a tour! What a hell of a tour! <laughs> all right, I'll leave you with that. This is Kate Wagner for the Cycling Podcast. Signing off. Thanks, everyone. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freeb, and Lionel Burney.